Let's pray together. Our Lord, we uh, submit these few minutes before you uh, to be useful and to be transformative for our hearts and lives, that we would, we would be encouraged even as we recount in the scriptures your plan in the world, your sovereign hand over all things, your, your presence in the midst of life, even when it feels like you're not around. We pray that we might be encouraged by your spirit to believe these things. Uh, we need your help. We need your help to, um, for, our, for our rough and callous hearts to believe. And so would you soften them even now? Would you take away distractions from our minds? Would you cause the anxieties that are on our hearts to be calmed even in these moments that we might be able to hear from God himself? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I've heard it said that at any point in life for any person, uh, you are either coming out of a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're about to enter a storm. Now, I doubt that many of us come in this morning having just faced an actual raging storm, and yet we could say that in a room this size that there are many who come in this morning facing some storm in life, right? Be it your health or relationships or finance or future or emotional state or loss of someone, whatever it may be, it's possible that many in this room come in facing some storm in life. And so while for many of us these can feel like short bouts with, with struggle or suffering, uh, for some of us these things have lasted forever and it actually feels like it will last for the rest of our lives. These storms can feel tempestuous. They can feel unforgiving like the harsh breaks of a wave crashing against your back, the feeling like you're about to go under and you're taking in water, unable to see any shore in sight to find safety or relief. These storms can feel really intense, feel like they last forever. This morning, as Katie Ann read for us, we get to read as Paul experiences an actual storm, an actual raging storm in the book of Acts, in Acts 27. And as we see Paul experiencing this storm, simply... It's going to teach us how we might be able to even process and go through the storms that we face in our own lives. So as we get to Acts 27, here are four things I want us to be thinking, four movements, four headers for us to think through and make sense of Acts 27. The first is approaching the storm, verses 1 to, th 1 to 20. Second is a, a promise in the storm, 21 to 26. The third is enduring the storm, 27 to 38. And lastly, surviving the storm, verses 39 to 44. So those can be sort of headings to lead us through this long passage of Scripture, Acts 27. So let's jump right into Acts 27. It's on page 936 in the Bibles uh, underneath the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, please take one as a gift from us to you. So first, approaching the storm, the first 20 verses of Acts 27. We won't read it all, but one of the things that is really apparent and really stood out to me in this passage, as you even read it this morning, is that there's so much nautical detail, so many details about sailing and things that you would not even care to know about, this passage talks about. I didn't know much about sailing before, but after reading this passage, I feel like I can safely sail a ship, to be honest with you. There's so much detail in this passage that you just, you know the geography, you know the navigation, you know what to do with the sails. Because Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, writes in vivid detail what it looks like to know about weather, about navigation, 
uh, about what it looks like to anchor and hoist sails to undergird the ship and what to do when things at sea go bad. It's the kind of detail about sailing you wouldn't expect from a doctor unless he was in the ship himself, which he was. Because as you read through Acts 27, you realize that he uses we, the plural, very frequently. And so we actually realize that Luke, the writer of Acts, Dr. Luke, is actually on board the ship himself. Uh, Luke was likely penning some of his journal of Acts in this very ship. Think of that. As the ship is tossing to and fro, Luke is likely writing out some of the very notes that he would use to pen the book of Acts. Not only is Luke on this ship, but 276 people, we learn later, are on this ship, this large cargo ship carrying prisoners and soldiers and sailors and who but Apostle Paul, uh, the one whom we hear so much about in Acts. Because if you remember last week, Paul continues on in shackles with his arms and legs shackled in chains as a prisoner. Why? Because he has yet to stand trial before Caesar in Rome. In fact, he desires to stay in chains because he wants to be before Caesar in Rome. And so we see that Paul is still in custody. The centurion, it says, is a man named Julius. He's the one who's in charge. And it says actually in verse 3 that he treats him kindly. This, This centurion, this man actually treats Paul, the prisoner, Kindly. In fact, it says that he allows Paul to be with his friends for a short time to be cared for. So, as this journey to Rome continues on, we quickly realize in Acts 27 that things are not going to be looking so good. Because the journey to Rome, at best case, with the best conditions outside, five weeks is the length of this journey. And verse 9 says that it's after the fast, which is Yom Kippur, it's the Day of Atonement. So it would be well into the fall, sort of early winter, late fall, which is the time that they're setting out for sail to Rome. Because the conditions are harsh, the waves are known to be notorious for beating hard against ships. And so it's not recommended that you go on to the sea to sail during this time. And Paul is well-versed at seas. Would you know that even as we read of this shipwreck today, this is going to be his fourth shipwreck his fourth shipwreck this brother has traveled scholars say 11 voyages over 3500 miles this man has logged some serious frequent sailor miles he knows his sea he knows what to look out for he has been on the waters for a while and so Paul speaks up in verse 10 saying sirs I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So Julius hears what Paul says, and he essentially says, Paul, stay in your lane. You're a theologian. You're not a sailor. Let these guys do their job. Stay in your lane. We're going to sail. We're going to set sail. And so they set to sea once again. And they are sailing close to the shore is what Luke pens, that they're sailing close to the coastline, right? But then things take a sudden turn in verse 14. It says, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. 
Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You feel with Luke as he's writing this, the tide is literally changing. Right, The sea tides are now crashing up against this large sip. And Luke says that a tempestuous wind, a tempestuous, harsh wind hits them. When you take that word from the Greek and translate that into the English, it actually is our word typhoon. It's those kinds of conditions that this ship and the passengers in it are now enduring. And it says that they're pushed away from the shore and into the deep sea. This ship is not made to be, be sailing in the deep sea. It's supposed to be along the coast. And yet the ship is pushed, driven out to the sea. And what happens? They start strapping the ship together to keep it from breaking from left to right and from top to bottom. They wrap the ship up so that the planks would stay together. Not only that, but they began tossing anything that weighs them down overboard. What do they toss? They toss the cargo and then the ship's heavy tackle with their own hands. This is large cables, large anchors that they're now tossing overboard to relieve the ship of its weight. And as you hear this and you read these verses, what you hear is sheer panic. And what you see is desperate measures being taken because the worst is expected. The passengers, the soldiers, the sailors, everyone on board, they are expecting the worst to happen. This scene, if you've watched the, I don't know how old it is now, 20 years, the movie Titanic, this is like the scene in Titanic just as the ship is beginning to bow over. This is the scene where everyone is starting to run around, do anything that they can to save themselves. That's That's the feel of this scene. No more wine glasses, no more orchestra. Everyone has their pants rolled up, sleeves rolled up, and now they're getting to work, throwing anything they can overboard. Because this could be the end for these people on this ship. In fact, the place that is mentioned, Sirtis, that they're going to run aground on Sirtis, that was actually known as the graveyard for sea vessels. When you hit Sirtis, you're likely done. And so they know this is not going to end well. And you feel the intensity of these moments in verse 20. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You've got to remember, right? Compasses were sort of around, but not really. No one really used compasses. So how were they navigating the seas? They were using the sun by day and the stars by night. What do you do when there's no sun or stars to navigate when you're in the deep sea? When there's a heavy typhoon raging, when there's darkness covering around because there is no sun out or stars out to illuminate the land, illuminate the seas. What do you do when you're in that kind of a scenario? When you've actually dropped your gears, you've dropped the tackle, all hope of being saved is completely lost. There's no, there's no Google Maps. There's no waves. There's no compass. There's no maps. There's nothing you go to because even the sun and the stars can't be seen. And so as you get to this scene, in the middle of a ship full of hopeless and tired people, Paul now stands up on the deck and boldly speaks some words. And it brings us to our second movement, a promise in the storm. Reading from verse 21. Paul stood up among them and said, 
men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Uh, just to pause there, it's like Paul can't help himself, but he's saying, I told you so. I told you so. You shouldn't have done this. I told you, if you had just listened to me, you would have not incurred this injury and loss if you just listened to me. But I actually don't think it's just that he's saying, I told you so, to sort of stab them and turn the knife a little bit. I think it's more than that. I think Paul is saying this because he wants to have credibility about what he's about to speak now. They've not listened to him before. Maybe they'll listen to him now because they realize that what he said was true. He's saying, I've warned you before. Would you please listen to me now? And he goes on in verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Consider the words that Paul chooses here. He says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Paul here could have used many words, many used words that are used in scriptures. right? He could have said he's the, the God of the heavens and the earth. Though that's true, he doesn't use it. He could have said that He's the God who rules over all of the seas, though that is very helpful to know when you're facing a raging storm at sea. He says, of the God to whom I belong. Of the God to whom I belong. What does, as you hear that, what does that language communicate to us? The language of belonging, belonging to someone. It's that when God sends forth his son Jesus Christ for us, he actually, in redeeming us, he pays a price for us. And he takes ownership of our lives. God has ownership of our lives, and he has, he has a vested interest in us. It's that we belong to God, not just a transactional way. We, we, we belong to God as sons, as daughters. It's with Christ's own blood that he has purchased us and redeemed us. And so when, when Paul says, I belong to God, he's saying, I am God's. He sees me. He has not abandoned me. He has not left me. It's with Christ's own blood that, that I've been possessed by God. Have you ever wondered why the word church is called the church? There are many reasons, but one of the reasons is because the word church comes from a Greek word which literally means those who are the possession of the Lord. The church, you and I, if you are a Christian here, we are, how beautiful it is, we are the possession of the Lord, bought by the blood of Christ. We are redeemed. We belong to him. And so when Paul says, I belong to him, I, I belong to him, he's, he's restating his faith in the God who has saved him. Dear Christian, it is no small thing to remember the stunning reality that we belong to God, even through raging storms like Paul is experiencing at the sea. And so, Paul goes on to speak in verse 24. And this angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So, in the middle of the storm, with Paul himself unaware of what will actually happen. Because you've got to think, Paul is, Paul is not God. He's speaking on behalf of God. Paul, I, th I think, actually thought this thing was not going to go well. Because that's what he initially said in the first few verses. If you do this, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to lose life. You're going to lose the ship. 
And yet now Paul gets a word in the middle of the storm. Paul, unaware of what will happen, an angel of the Lord comes to him at night and tells him, don't be afraid. This angel tells him, God has, has not abandoned you or his plan to get you before Caesar. Right? You've got to remember, this was the plan. We, we read of this before in Acts to get him to Caesar. Not only that, but you will be saved and all those who are on the ship will be saved and rescued. And this, this word, this promise from God is no small comfort to Paul's heart that God has made it. That God's words have sent an angel to say, you will not be lost. Those in the ship will not be lost. And not only is, is he comforted, but he urges them to be comforted as well, those in the ship. Here is the trust in God's promise. It says in verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Take heart, take courage. Dear men, because I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, wrote of these words from Paul. He says this, He that is true to Christ, God who is true to Christ, will be true to every member of Christ's body. He cannot lie. Whatever else you question, always believe God. For the words, it shall be, you can apply to everything God has told you. Whatever promise he has made, whatever declaration he has set forth in his holy word, it shall be even as it was told you. It shall be even as it, it shall told you. We shall expect, the promise, Spurgeon says, to be faithful. And we shall find it so. We can expect it to happen. And when we get there, we will find that it has happened. What is Spurgeon saying? What is the life for the Christian? To know calm, even in the midst of sorrows and storms. It is to say, I believe God. In the midst of uncertainty and turmoil and storm and loss and worry and, and wonder and anxiety of every kind, what is it to be a Christian? It is to say, I believe God that all will come to pass exactly as I have been told. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? That as Jesus himself spoke in Matthew, though heaven and earth may pass away, Jesus says, my words will never pass away. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? To trust in the words, the promise of God. They are always true, never empty, never void. There is a rock-solid confidence for the Christian that though billows roar, roll and though the storms may rage, though all the seas come raging up against us, that God's promise will prevail in the end. And for Paul, he is holding on to God's word. He's saying, I believe God. I believe it will come to pass exactly as I have been told. As Paul believes that God will act based on his promise, would you notice that he does not throw his hands up and just wait? Paul does not just look at God and say, I've received your word, and then just go on with life, just hanging out on, on a deck, not doing anything, and just waiting for something to happen. Paul does not say, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. That's not his posture as he hears this promise. Paul does not sit idly by just because a promise has been made of deliverance from God. Would you notice that? 
Because I think that's what would come to mind. If you were Paul sitting on that ship and you were told you will be okay and all those who are on the ship will be okay, wouldn't you just say, all right, I'm just going to wait it out and what will happen will happen because God is going to do his work. I think one of the things that we'll see in this chapter is that for Paul, hear this, for Paul, divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. And I think some of us struggle to understand the mystery in that. How is it that God can set forth something and yet we be a part of the plan? If God is sovereign and governs all things, why should we do anything? Isn't it all rigged anyways? Isn't the, aren't the, the pieces on the table already set? Do we have any place in God's sovereignty to, to work and to do and to speak? And yet there is in the scriptures a sense in which God acts through the means of people and circumstances. In fact, you remember earlier when we first started in the book of Acts in chapter 2. Isn't this exactly what Peter alludes to in Acts chapter 2 verses 23? Here's what Peter says there. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you hear that? Both God's sovereign foreknowledge and plan, also somehow done by the hands of men. Not only does God set forth the good things in life by, by his sovereign will through the hands of men, but even Jesus Christ was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and killed by the hands of men. Both good and bad, God's sovereign plan and will in this life and in, in your life, for good and for ill, as we experience it, done by his sovereign plan, even by the hands of men. That's what we'll see in our next and third movement, Enduring the Storm. How is it that Paul accepts this word and promise from God, and how will he act? Reading from verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, and pause there. Would you consider that at this point, days have passed since Paul has communicated this promise from God? It's been 14 nights already. It's been 14 nights that they are at sea. You've got to imagine that the 276 people on board are beginning to wonder that Paul, everything he said was a bunch of malarkey. Time has passed. We're not saved yet. We're still in this raging sea. There is no God, and there, he's not going to save us. He would have done so by now. Where is Paul's God who is going to miraculously save us from this ship? There's no stars out, no sun out, no gears. Nothing's, nothing's left on the boat. And Luke continues, At about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Here's the scene. There's a lot of drama and a lot of moving parts all happening at the same time. Here's the scene. The sailors try and determine where or wh whether they are not 
whether they are cl close to shore or whether the coast is nearby. So they perform this navigational technique called sounding. And as the sailors fear that this situation might get worse, as they fear that their ship might actually run up against some rocks, they release the lifeboat. They, they, they attempt to escape by the lifeboat, right? So the scene is they might see something. Something might be close by. There's rocks that threaten the ship. And the sailors themselves are beginning to wonder, are we going to be destroyed? And so what do they do? They actually go over to the ropes where the lifeboats are held. They act like they're letting down anchors. They, in secret, act like they're letting down anchors, but they're trying to release the ropes that lower the lifeboat so that they can get on the lifeboat and save themselves. It's a stunning scene, right? The sailors are trying to save themselves, leave those who are on the boat, and you've got to give them an A for effort because that's pretty slick. It's pretty slick to be a sailor acting like you're lowering anchors all the while lowering your own lifeboat, lifeboat to save yourself from the sinking ship. And so Paul tells Julius after he sees this, listen, unless these men stay in this ship, you cannot be saved. They need to run the ship. Don't let them go. And then what happens? The soldiers come in abruptly and what do they do? Sort of really quickly, they're like, all right, we've got to act. And they cut the ropes of the lifeboat because they don't want the sailors to escape. And if you're on the ship watching all of this, you must be pulling out your hair wondering, why would you do that? Because the soldiers receiving Paul's order, and Paul never told them to cut the lifeboat off the ship. But these, these soldiers come, they cut the ropes, and their only chance potentially of leaving that ship safely is cut off because these soldiers have made a bad situation worse. And so this scene is becoming increasingly more difficult to understand. How will we be saved from this ship, Paul? Where is your God? Luke continues in verse 33. As day was about to dawn... Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. If any of you have been in a hospital room as someone is suffering, potentially even life-threatening, if you have been in those kinds of situations and have asked someone in the room, hey, would you be up for some food in the cafeteria? Will you want to come with me? Usually the response is going to be, no, I can't do that. I can't stomach that. I don't have an appetite. No thanks. Why? Because when things are looking dire and when things are looking bad, the last thing you are thinking about or have an appetite for is food. And yet here Paul is like, who wants some pancakes? Can I get you some eggs with that toast? In the most weirdest situation, right? Paul is saying, I know we're about to die, but would you like some breakfast? Would you like to sit by the table with me? And in the minds of these passengers, they're all thinking, what good is food if we're going to die anyways, Paul? Why would you offer me food if we're all going to perish soon anyways? But for Paul, what is he thinking? God is going to save us. You need your strength. Eat up. Not a hair on your head will perish. You need your strength. Would you eat up? Paul is concerned with the sailors staying, the lifeboat being intact, the passengers eating, all while believing that God is sovereign. Would you hear that? He's concerned with the lifeboat staying, the sailors staying, the, the passengers all eating because 
Paul, though he believes that God is sovereign and has given a promise, it does not negate his taking action and being the means through God's promise. Did you hear that? When you know that you're in a storm and eventually you'll get out, it, there's, a tempting, there's something in you that says, I, I don't have the strength to go on anymore. And yet, you've got to remember, Paul is in the ship, same ship as these passengers. He's enduring the same storms. He must have doubts and questions and fears, though he fights to believe in God's promise. Paul is not immune from fears and anxieties and struggles. And yet, would you hear, it is his belief in God's promise. It is Paul's belief in God's promise that keeps him going and that does not allow him to give up on this ship. It is Paul's belief that God will save God will deliver, God will rescue, that he says, I'm going to eat some breakfast. That's what gets him to say, I'm going to get up and keep going. And as a result, something really interesting happens in this text. Reading from verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. As you read that, you see that these people are seeing Paul working hard to get to shore safely, right? You're seeing that they're, they're watching Paul. He's gotten the promise, but he's working hard to see them to, to safety at the shore. They are seeing him encourage them to eat food and to gain strength. Then they see him break bread, giving thanks to his God and eating himself. What are they thinking now? Here again, the, the preacher Charles Spurgeon again on this passage. It's, it's moving. Spurgeon says, If they did not themselves yet believe, yet Paul's calm face amid the storm, that practical action in bidding them take bread and eat, that common sense proceeding in keeping the sailors to manage the ship, all this made them see that he was not a man who merely talked to faith, but one to whom believing was part and parcel of his faith. Faith was real for him and therefore practical. We must make God to be the greatest factor in our daily calculations, the chief force and fact of our lives. We must, each one, boldly act on the conviction that it shall be even as he told me. Did you hear that? It is Paul's very belief in the promise of God that gets him to move. And not only that, it's what gets these passengers to see something in Paul's faith. These passengers are deeply encouraged that Paul doesn't just speak of faith in God, but he acts on it. And then what does that result in? Verse 38 says, And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Doesn't it seem to you that these folks on the ship, mostly pagans, mostly who don't believe in Paul's God, are beginning to hope and expect in the God who has promised safety to Paul for the entire ship. And as I was reading this past week, one thing that one preacher wrote stood out to me. He was saying, you know, don't underestimate the value of something as small as in your executive suite or on a lunch break or something with your coworkers or when you go to a restaurant, the impact that that has on someone else watching you pray in thanks to God for something as small as food. Because perhaps in those moments, you are going through a trying time and they know it. 
Perhaps you are facing anxieties at work. Perhaps you have lost a loved one. Perhaps you are going through the worst ill, and yet when they see you giving thanks to God, breaking bread in that midst, would you imagine that for them it means something? It means that for this brother, for this sister, this coworker, this friend, this neighbor, that even in the midst of the most immense storm, their faith is practical, it's deeply practical, it's just not theory, it's not just promises that are ethereal. It comes down on the ground and says, because I believe in the promise, I can pray, I can eat, I can move on in life, and I can, I can walk through this life, even through the deepest sorrows, even as I weep and grieve, because God has promised that it will be exactly as it has been told to me. And that's what happens in this ship. Because they see Paul, they see, they see Paul keep going, keeping the, the sailors, keeping the boat, getting them to eat, him himself eating because he knows that God will save them. And that means something for Paul. That's why they themselves take bread. They, after eating, expecting that they will be safe, actually throw the rest of the wheat overboard. Because they know soon deliverance is coming because Paul believes so strongly that his God will save. Our fourth and final movement, surviving the storm. Reading from verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship, the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So they see land, these sailors see land, and they plan to run the ship onto shore, right? Sort of forcing it onto the beach. They make all of the preparations. They cast down the anchors. They loosen the ropes that hold the rudders. They hoist their sails up into the sky. But then the bow gets stuck and the stern begins to break apart, right? So as they're heading onto shore, things start to go bad again. Now with the shore in sight, though, there's hope. And now there's a decision to be made. If we do get onto shore and these prisoners escape, we should probably kill them. Because what happens in Roman law is if you are a soldier in charge of your prisoner, if they escape, guess who gets killed? You. And so these soldiers have a vested interest to keep these prisoners either in chains or killed because if they get escaped, they're done. And so as they begin to determine what should we do with these prisoners, Julius comes in, the centurion, and you see that Paul has so won over Julius that he ordered all people, including the prisoners, to swim, to get on planks, to get on someone's back, do something just to get to shore. That's something I did in the ocean. I can't swim. So I literally held on to someone's back, snorkeling in the water because I can't swim. So I relate to this. Right? He's saying, if you swim, if you don't swim, it's okay. Grab a plank, grab a body, do something. Everyone just get to shore. And lo and behold, what was promised by God, all have been saved. Exactly as it has been told. That's how the passage ends. And so it was that all were brought safely to land.
Okay, so as we conclude, as we close, what should we be thinking? What should we be believing in light of this saga of the shipwreck of Paul? This morning, if you are a Christian, I want to say simply, would you hold on to God's promises? If you are in the middle of a storm this morning, perhaps you're struggling to believe Perhaps the, the breaks of the waves feel so harsh that it's causing pain. It's moving you and pushing you away from God. Would you this morning hold on to God's promises? Because hear me, sometimes your only testimony in this life will be saying, it will be exactly as I have been told. That may be the only testimony that you can ever say regarding the situation in your life, regarding the storm that you struggle with. Sometimes in this life, you will not get to the shore that you seek. Sometimes there is no bay to dock at. Sometimes there's no beach to lie on. Sometimes there is no, no ocean to swim across to finally receive safety. Your suffering and your struggles and your storms could last a lifetime, dear brothers and sisters. It could last your entire lifetime, and yet you could you could with bold, rock-solid confidence say that in the end, it will be exactly as I have been told. Though you may never see the shore on this side, would you hear this? What is your hope, Christian? What is our hope? Where is the end of this life headed? It's on riding on the seas to an eternal shore that is without suffering and pain and anxieties and unhappiness. Your storm may last 14 days or 14 months or 14 years or for a lifetime, and yet it will never call into question the absolute authority of the promise of God that he will see you through in the end. There's no question about that. Hear Paul, watch Paul, see Paul endure this storm and believe that it will be exactly as I have been told. The God to whom you belong will bring you safe to shore. This morning, if you are not a Christian, if you don't yet trust in Christ, dear friends, hear this warning out of love for you, out of the concern for your very souls. You will not only endure the storms of this life, but there is an eternal storm coming, an eternal storm coming that you cannot ever swim away from, that you will never be rescued from, one that will be forever and far worse than the storms of this life. So I beg you, turn this morning to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is that Jesus actually endured the worst storm for you and for me. Your sins, your pain. He has taken on death and hell and conquered it. He's taken on the storm of your guilt and evil so that you might one day be brought to shore into the loving arms of the Father. And so this morning, would you take Jesus Christ? Belong to him today. This morning, for all of us, would you allow the Lord to be Lord of all, the one who is in the storms with us, our most eternal storms he has conquered. And even in the storms of today, he is conquering, awaiting for us to be at shore with him in eternity. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you now asking, praying, pleading with you to make these words true in our hearts. 
As quick as we hear them, as quickly we will forget them. And our hearts even the more to believe them. And so we pray that you would grant us grace to believe that in the end, everything, all of your promises in these 66 books of God's word will be true in the end. Not one thing will be missed, not one promise unfulfilled. God, help us to believe that you are writing a story that does not mean our eternal end in in eternal storm, but that you have come into this world to put an end to it, to calm the storm, to bring us to shore. We trust that you're able to do that, and we trust that even today that we can believe these things even in the midst of the most difficult of situations. Help us to believe. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.